Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We see that the author of the Israelites' exile was God himself. And what does that mean? Well, the exile offered time to gather, to study, to be one people in a new land, realizing that God cares for even those who weren't Jewish. What does that mean for us in our exile? You're listening to The Plans I Have for You by Reverend Peter Yonker. My Bible reading this morning is the book of Isaiah. Um, I'm only slightly exaggerating when I say that, and Christy kind of alluded to that. We are in the last, this is the last of our exile sermons, uh, sermons where we look at the exile texts, texts written during exiles, or texts written to exiles when Israel went into Babylon. And uh, those are times, of course, where Israel was under pressure and struggling, and by listening to those, we're hoping to hear what that might mean for us when we struggle or when we're under pressure. Um, so I, some of these themes that are in these, this literature, uh, they're not just in one place, they're all through. So this is my attempt to show you this theme as it carries itself through the whole book. So listen, all these texts have a similar theme. Uh, see if you can pick up what it is. Isaiah 2, verse 2 through 3. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 7. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and all that springs from it, who gives breath to its peoples, who gives life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind. To free captives from prison. And to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 45, 22 to 40, 24. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. Isaiah 55, verses 3 to 5. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant for you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. And finally, Isaiah 56, verse 3 to 5. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. 
For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, to those who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give in within my temple and my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I hope you saw the theme that was there. Um, I'm not going to mention it now. We'll come back to it later. And to lead up to it, I want to start by going back to getting at this theme. I want to start by going back to the very first sermon text that I had in this series, Jeremiah 29, which, remember, was the letter that Jeremiah sent to the exiles saying, here's how you are to live when you are in Babylon. And you remember that the two extremes were don't assimilate, so don't just become like everybody else, like the Babylonians. That was one extreme. Don't do that. And don't become sectarian. Don't fearfully separate yourselves from all the Babylonians. Instead, pray for the welfare of the city. Get engaged in the city, but do it, keeping your identity as the people of God. That was clearly the main point of that passage. But if you're paying attention, as I was reading it, there was one, one theme in that passage, a very difficult theme, a hard theme, that I shamelessly dodged. I, didn't, I did not address it. But it's in there, and I'm going to address it today because it leads us to this larger theme that goes through the exile literature. I'm going to read just a few verses from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29 again, and as I do it, listen and tell me, answer this question, who was it who carried the Jews, the people of Jerusalem, into exile? Who did it? This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, and then he goes into the instructions about how to engage the city. And then I'm going to skip ahead to verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So who was it who caused the exile? Who was it that carried Israel, carried the people of Jerusalem into exile? Very clear here, the Lord says, it was me. I did it. It was my plan, my will. That's a hard word. Must have been a terrible hard word for the people who were in exile to think of all the horrific things they'd been through and then to have God say, that was me. That was part of my plan. It's still a hard word for any of us who are going through something that makes us feel like we are in exile, who are going through some terrible thing in our lives, who have that sort of feeling that we are isolated and pushed apart and struggling to have God say, this is me. This is part of my plan. And this isn't the only place where God says something like this to the exiles. He says the same thing all throughout the book of Isaiah. There is in the book of Isaiah, for lack of a better word, a strong predestinarian emphasis. God's plan is asserted and it says, before things spring into being, I tell you because I am in control of this world. 
Isaiah 40, a passage we love to read around Advent, says this, and you'll remember, comfort, comfort my people. Declare to Jerusalem that her hard service is over, the exile is over, because she has received from the Lord's hand, from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. This is me. I'm in this. This is part of my plan, says the Lord, clearly in the exile literature. Now, this takes nuanced understanding. Because exile was a terrible thing, and there were things that the Babylonians did to the people of Jerusalem that were unspeakable and were evil and chaotic. And God did not want those things, and God does not desire those things. Those things are evil. And in other places in Scripture, God makes it clear that he will punish Babylon for those evil things. But the word here is that somehow God says, in the middle of all that, in spite of that evil that they did, doesn't come from God, in spite of the evil that they did, I'm in the midst of this. And I'm working all these things towards good. I want to consider that together today as we think about exile and struggle in our own lives. We can look at what happened to the Israelites in Babylon, and in Scripture it gives us a pretty idea. God basically says, this is my plan. This is what I was doing. This is the good that I was working for. We can look at Israel and we can name it. That's harder to do in our lives. I want to be hesitant to say too much too soon. To declare God's purposes in the minute the stuff is happening, you've got to be so careful about that. But I want to at least begin to explore what God might be doing in our exile by watching Israel's. As I see what Scripture says about what God was doing in their exile, I see two things that he was doing for them. One of them has to do with depth. When you read the exile literature, it's very clear that the reason Israel is sent into exile in the first place is because of their sin. They were not serious about their faith. They were half-hearted. They were complacent. They were going through the motions. They were doing the things, you know, offering the sacrifices, going to the festivals, but their heart wasn't in it. They didn't seek justice. They didn't seek righteousness. It was all just a big show. And if you read... Isaiah 3, uh, 1 through 5, you see the things that they were concerned about. You see the things that their hearts were aimed towards. And, and it was their own prosperity, uh, pleasures, uh, adding house to house, Isaiah 3, drinking, just generally indulging their appetites and going through the motions with the rest of the stuff. Now, they all would have called themselves children of Abraham. Oh, yeah, I'm a children of Abraham. Oh, yeah. Oh, the temple. I love the temple. I take visitors to it. Every time they come to town, I love taking them to the temple. Every Passover, we got a great party, neighborhood party. It's a real shindig. Everybody comes over, always invite a priest. Someone's got to pray, you know. Just kidding. Going through the motions, skin deep. So God's people become complacent. And the message is that's why God sends the exile. That's a punishment. But God's punishments are not ever just punitive. They are purposeful. God's punishments are not just a slap on the wrist. God's punishments are meant to bring a cure. And the punishment God brings, exile, is precisely the cure Israel needs for its half-heartedness and its complacency. Because when you are in Babylon in exile, you cannot be half-hearted. 
In Jerusalem, you can be half-hearted. Everybody around you is a believer, and you can look around and you say, oh yeah, all these people, yeah, we're all, you know, we're all followers of God. But in Babylon, you cannot be half-hearted. You have to be intentional about your faith. You have to practice community. You have to do the disciplines of faith. You have to practice prayer. And if you don't, you will be assimilated. Exile is no place for half-heartedness if you want to maintain your identity as a people of God. And that's precisely what you see as a matter of history that happens during the exile. During the exile, new practices are developed that solidify their identity as people of God. Synagogue practice starts during the exile. They learn this new discipline of worship and gathering together that keeps their identity. The gathering and maintaining of Scripture happens in exile. Of course, they knew Scripture before, but during exile, they really had to hold on to it. So they brought it together, and they wrote it down, and they memorized it and dedicated themselves to it. And so both the Scripture and the practice of synagogue are things that pave the way for future generations, including us. So exile wasn't just punishment. It was a school for growth. When it comes to the pressures that the modern church faces and the pressures that you as individuals face, again, I don't want to be too quick to say exactly what God is doing with you. But maybe he's in the midst of this to make us deeper. I remember when I first came to Grand Rapids uh, from my hometown, Kingston, Ontario, which is a much more secular, much more secular place than Grand Rapids, Michigan. When I came here and I, I started going to Calvin College, as it was called then, and I started meeting people from Holland and Grand Rapids and Hudsonville, and they would say to me, oh, you know what? I don't know anybody who's not a Christian. Every single person I know in my life is not a Christian. And I would say, oh, come on. That's not possible. Because where I was from, that was absolutely not possible. When I, I went to a public school, and if I met anyone, no matter what, if they were Catholic, if they were Baptist, um, I didn't check if they knew Tulip or not. I was just so glad that there was someone who was serious about their faith. And I, they were serious. They became, they be, I saw them as a brother and a sister. That was a big deal to me. It was impossible for me to imagine a place where everybody you knew was a Christian. But after living here for a few years... Yeah, that is, that's possible. And some of that was wonderful. It's really great to be with people who are like you. It's amazing to go into Russ's and open the restaurant and find a Bible verse on it. It's like, these are my people, man. But, just like it was in Jerusalem, it becomes very easy to believe that faith is just in the water. That, of course, my children are going to become Christians because that's what everybody becomes around here because that's all I know. Of course, they're going to become people of faith. But that's not how it is anymore, is it? I doubt very many of you would say everybody I know is a Christian. And in this new context, even in Grand Rapids, no one is going to become a Christian just by osmosis. To do this, to maintain our identity, to be people of sincere faith will take intention. Practicing the habits of community. Practicing the habits of devotion. It will take intentional conversations around the dinner table with people we love. 
It'll take parents telling their children stories of their own faith. It'll take grandparents telling their grandchildren stories of their faith. It won't just happen. These exile conditions may be adverse, but it is entirely possible that through them, God is teaching us to go deeper with one another in our faith. So God used exile to deepen people. The second thing he used exile to do, as we see it revealed in Scripture, is to broaden them, to make them more wide, in a spiritual sense, I mean. To understand that, you've got to understand that back in the day when, when um, Israel went into exile, for most of the pagan religions, their sense of their gods was regional. They thought of their gods as regional deities. So Marduk was the god of Babylon, and the Babylonians thought that his power was mostly concentrated around the city of Babylon. So, you know, Marduk was powerful in Babylon, and maybe along the Tigris and Euphrates River. But if you went up to the mountains, maybe he wasn't so powerful. So if you were a Babylonian general, and you were going to fight a battle that was in Babylon around the city, you'd pray to Marduk. But if you went up into the mountains, then you'd pray to whatever mountain god was your choice. Now, if that sounds weird to you, go look at 1 Kings 20, verse 23. 1 Kings 20, verse 23. The Arameans want to go to war against the people of Israel, but they want to make sure they win. So they say to each other, let's not fight them in the mountains because their God is a God of the mountains. Let's go down into the valleys and fight them down there because we got a better chance of winning down there. They think of God as a God of the mountains. They're wrong about that. They think of the Lord as a regional God. And probably they think that because of the name El Shaddai, which means God of the mountains. That was the mentality. They're wrong, but that was the mentality. Another example of that, a little detail from the story of Naaman. You remember Naaman is the Syrian general who gets healed by going down into the Jordan River and he gets cleaned. A little detail, after he's cleaned, he wants to worship God. What does he do? You probably forgot this bit. He takes two wagon loads of dirt from Israel back Syria. Why does he do that? Because he has that mentality that God is a regional God. And he thinks, I need the dirt. I need the region in order to be able to worship. Now, again, he's utterly wrong about that, but that's the mindset. Now, if that's your mindset, if you think of gods as regional gods, what's the psychology that you have about the rest of the world? All your intention and energy is on you and your tribe and your people. And the people out there are totally dangerous and totally alien. Your God has nothing to do with them. If anything, your God just wants to wipe them out. That would be the regional mindset. That regional mindset had started to creep into the people of Israel. And so when the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was leveled and they were taken away from their city, when they were taken away from their region, there were many who thought, that's it. We are going to literally a godless place. God's house is gone. God is not with us. We will not find him. But then, this is what surprised them. They got to Babylon and realized that he was Lord there too. That he was working there too. That he was sending restless dreams to kings and shaking them up. That through the lion's den and through the fiery furnace, he was putting these kings on their knees and making them say things like, your God is the God of gods. He is the only one who can reveal the mysteries. 
In Babylon, they realized not only is our Lord master here, he cares about these people. He cares about the people of Babylon. He cares about the people of Nineveh. That brings us to those texts I read. What was the common thread for them? It's God reminding them that their purpose was universal. It wasn't restricted to Jerusalem. It was for the whole world. They were called to be a light to the whole world. They had forgotten that. They should have remembered because when Abraham was called, right, it says, your family will be a blessing to the entire nation or to all the nations of the world. They forgot. Their hopes had become and their prayers had become too small, too narrow. Hearth and home. All they worried about was whether their home was safe, whether the kids were healthy, the temple looked good and well cared for, the, the walls of the city were thick. God was teaching them to widen their prayers. Exile made them ask questions they never asked before, face people they'd never faced before. It expanded them and it transformed them and realized that his purposes were that every knee should finally bow and that would eventually happen through Jesus. He broadened them. It reminds me of a story of someone I know, and I won't say his name because some of you know him. For most of his life, he was just a regular guy, and regular guy in the grave sense means he was a hard-working, successful man, and he worked in white-collar job, became very successful, moved up the ranks, uh, was doing great. Everybody said, great guy, success. This is what success looks like. But as he got closer to retirement, he began to feel a kind of restlessness. God was nudging him, he says. And so he started to work in Heartside. He started to volunteer in Heartside. And as he did that, as he got deeper, uh, the director of Guiding Light challenged him and said, if you really want to figure this out, you got to go all the way down to the bottom of what makes these people struggle. I want you to mentor some of the men who are in the worst shape. I want you to come alongside them and work with them. And that's what he did. He went right down and started mentoring some of the people who were in the absolute worst shape. He went into exile, their exile. I mean, it was a voluntary. He wasn't carried away, but he went into a place of exile. And it was transformative for him. He thought when he went there that it was all going to be downhill from him, right? He is a success guy, so he was going to transform them. What he found is that it went both ways, and he was transformed. He was changed in the way that he looked at things. He thought, because he was success, that he was some up here, and these guys, well, they were way down here. What he found, like, wow, these guys are smart and sensitive. They're as smart as me. The only thing that separates us is an accident of mental illness or something where they tripped into addiction or abuse. We are not like this. We are this close together. And they would do Bible studies together, and he would realize that they were brothers and grace was flowing. And so now, when he gets up in the morning, instead of focusing on what do I need to do to be a success today, his three watchwords are humility, gratitude, and giving. God widened the stakes of his tent. I know there are many of you who are going through terrible things right now. And I, I, I don't pretend to be able to say to you, that's what God is doing in your life. This is what's happening. 
Um, there are words of lament in scripture to give voice to your pain. But even as you express those laments, I want to say to you, the potter has not forgotten about you. You are still in the potter's hands. Whether you're on the wheel or whether you're in the kiln, he has a plan for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its complexity, Lord. It's such a complex book. But it meets us in our complexity and in our, our difficulty. We thank you for that one word that stands in the middle of it all, Jesus Christ our Lord, his cross, where he comes down into our exile and his resurrection, which gives us everlasting hope that we will get out of it. Lord, let us be people of the cross this week as we go out into the world full of hope and love. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.